Well, hi, everyone. I'm Janet B. I've recovered from compulsive eating and bulimia. And I'm going to talk about the chapter Two Whys, which doesn't get a lot of airplay. Um, but I actually can't think of too many people who feel lonelier than the wife of an alcoholic. Imagine waiting up for the guy night after night, not knowing when or if he's coming home. And if he does, will he be sullen and silent or raging and abusive? And imagine if you have kids and you watch your kids learn how to be silent and tiptoe around the house and make themselves small so their dad doesn't notice them. It's easy to imagine that this wife, even though she may have been a woman of faith, it's easy to imagine her whispering in the dark, like, God, where are you? Do you hear me anymore? And then we get to this chapter, Two Eyes, where it says on page 104 that we want to leave you with the feeling that no situation is too difficult and no unhappiness too great to overcome. And you can almost feel the wives who went before reaching out to the struggling wife or the struggling compulsive eater saying, you matter to us. And I believe that if we really listen to the words in this chapter, it's like we can hear God saying, you matter to me. And isn't that what we all really, really want deep down? Um, before I get to the meat of this chapter, I want to just briefly go back to chapter four, We Agnostics, where they tell us what is the main purpose of this book, right? If you're like me, when you came in, you didn't care about the main purpose of this book. You just wanted the magic diet. But I learned that first, there was no magic diet. And even if there was, I wouldn't have the power to stick to it. So our big book tells us the main object of this book is to enable you to find a power greater than yourself, which will solve your problem. My problem was I couldn't stop eating because I didn't have the power. Willpower was a joke. Um, so I needed a power. And it said this power was going to solve my problem. Um, well, of course, the first problem I wanted God to solve was my food problem. And if he was going to solve my food problem then he must care about me, right? Otherwise he might be up in the cosmos knowing, oh yeah, I know how to solve Janet's food problem, but not doing it. But he does. And that's our second step, came to believe a power greater than ourselves could restore us to sanity, that there is a creator who loves us enough to restore us to sanity. So that's the God, this loving God who we matter to, who we're going to try to encounter in the pages of Two Wives. So if you have your big book, we're in the chapter Two Wives. Again, that chapter generally doesn't get a lot of airplay. People skip it saying, well, I'm not married to an alcoholic. It doesn't matter to me. I think that's a mistake because there are a lot of really good spiritual principles in this chapter. And my recovery ultimately isn't about food plans and meetings. It's about how I practice spiritual principles in all my affairs. Again, if you're new, that may sound weird. When I came to my first OA meeting, all I wanted was to stop binging. All I wanted was that magic food plan. It didn't work. Six and a half years in, not being abstinent for more than two weeks, and a lot of times not even till lunch. Finally, someone said that I had to change. I had to have this thing called a spiritual experience, which is explained on page 25 of the big book. It's basically when God rewires our hearts. Okay, well, how does that happen? Do I just say a prayer and God comes in with his gardening tools? Doesn't work that way. What works is this 12-step program, which tells me I need to get a concept of God, surrender, 
clean up my path, and then practice these principles in all my affairs. Um, and we don't have to wait till we're through the steps to start practicing principles like honesty, unselfishness. And this particular chapter, Two Wives, is chock full of some really like cool spiritual principles and some promises if we practice them. There's so many conditional promises in the big book. So I've just picked some because I have 11 pages and like 40 minutes. So I'm going to revert back to talk in Jersey and talk really fast. Um, so the first half of this chapter is about how to help someone who's an addict. And then about halfway through, it does this big switch, like, okay, wife, now let's talk about you and your spiritual problems. So we can dive in on page 104. On the last paragraph there, it says, we want to analyze mistakes we've made. We want to leave you with the feeling that no situation is too difficult and no unhappiness too great to be overcome. And I love that because it's telling me God is going to do one of two things. He's either going to change my situation or he's going to change me so that I'll be okay in my situation. Um, to me, that's a big demonstration of how much I matter to God. Door number one, he sits at his cosmic computer and like reroutes things so that my situation is changed for the better. Or door number two, he changes my heart. So if we go to the bottom of page 106, it talks about what happens to an addict as the sprees grow closer. It says the deepening pal of remorse, depression, and inferiority settle down on our loved ones, loved ones, and these things terrified and distracted us. Terrified and distracted us. Okay, distracted us from what? Well, if I'm overly focused on another family member, on, or anything else for that matter, I'm distracted from God. And the way I like to think of it is that like I'm swimming in one of those lap pools that has the lanes roped off and I'm swimming toward God. I visualize that. And if I start swimming in another lane, I lose my focus on God and doing his will. Other people's recovery and the future are things that are in other people's lanes. And I don't need to let their stuff come into my lane because it's going to block my focus. Okay. Um, top of page 107, it says that like animals on a treadmill, we patiently and wearily climbed, falling back in exhaustion after each futile attempt to reach solid ground. And it reminds me of like that little hamster in a cage on that wheelie thing that he's working and working and getting nowhere. And that's how I was in my early days of recovery. I worked really hard and I didn't get anywhere. No, I did. I got worse. If I were to look at day one coming into OA and then myself six and a half years later, I was worse, even though I did a lot of work, but I wasn't doing the right work. It was like being a diabetic and the doctor telling me to take penicillin and I take penicillin according to the directions. Well, I'm doing the work. I'm doing what I'm told, but I haven't been told the right thing. I need a new doctor who gives me correct information. So my caution here, especially if you're new and you're looking for a sponsor, or if you're not so new and your sponsor isn't giving you the 12 steps out of the big book, we have a right to vet our sponsors and make sure that he or she works the steps the way they are in the big book. I do not believe that if 
I put my hand up and say, I need a sponsor. The first person who says yes, oh, God must have, you know, put us together. I mean, maybe sometimes, but I want to vet my sponsor and make sure that she's worked the steps the way they've been worked in the book. That's a right that we have. And then once we find someone who has what we want and what, what should they have? They should have had a spiritual experience, a spiritual awakening, live be, and be living a life surrendered to the will of God and willing to teach you how to do that, how to surrender your life to God and work spiritual principles. Okay, continuing on page 107, it says the wives endured watching their husbands go to sanitariums, hospitals, jails, and the wives say, we naturally made mistake. And that's the second time this chapter uses the word mistake. And I really like that because most of us tend to fall off the side of the bed on either being too easy or too hard on ourselves. Um, so we wanna just make sure if we do something wrong, we fix it. It's a mistake. I, I have to make my amends, go to God and ask his forgiveness. And then I learn from it. It doesn't make me a bad person. Um, page 108, second full paragraph. It says, try not con to condemn your alcoholic husband, no matter what he says or does. Remember, he's just another very sick, unreasonable person. When he angers you, remembers that remember that he's very ill. So I see two things they're telling me to practice here with people. And again, this could be a spouse, a boss, a child, a friend. It says first, don't condemn. And there's a couple of reasons for that. First, condemning never works. Who of us came into recovery because someone said, you know, you're really a horrible compulsive eater. You're overweight, you're ruining your life, you're ruining other people's lives, get your act together. And then we said, oh, I didn't know that. Thanks for the condemnation. I think I'll go work a program and get my act together. Guarantee zero of us got here because of that. Um, it doesn't work. All it does is drive us to the drive-through. Um, also, if I'm condemning, it's dangerous for me spiritually, because if I'm condemning you, then that means I'm at the top of a mountain and guess where you are. And if I'm loaded with pride, and on the top of a mountain, the only place to go is down. So it also says when he angers you, remember he's very ill. Remembering, that's a verb. It's an action step I can take. I can remind myself that the person is ill, right? Remember when we're resolving resentments, we talk about people as spiritually sick. If I'm living with a raging alcoholic, or you know, someone who's acting inappropriately, that person is spiritually sick. And I need to have compassion. Now, again, that doesn't mean if I'm living with someone who's abusive to me, that I need to stay. So we're not talking about that here. But we need to, if we're living with an alcoholic, for example, um, we need to think, okay, if someone had a brain tumor, what kind of compassion would I have? When my mom first had um, first started getting sick, I remember one time I was taking her to a doctor's appointment and I showed up on time and she was agitated. And she said, you know, I had them call you to see where you were, you're late. I was right on time and I was a little annoyed. I'm like, mom, I'm not late. You shouldn't have had them call me. But a couple of weeks later, she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's. 
So after that, when she would get agitated or say things that weren't always nice or always correct, I didn't have any resentment because I knew that she was sick. And I read it now. And when I wrote that, I wrote that in the present tense. I know that she's sick, but she's since passed away. And I'm so grateful that through this program, God had allowed me to have compassion where before this program, I had zero. Okay. I feel like I'm doing like a survey class, you know, in school, like you do a survey class and you don't get too deep in anything. You just get like a little bit of everything. So, but it's all in the chapter. So ahead with our survey, we, um, they talk about the four different types of drinkers and what we can do to help them depending on the type they are. But on page 111, they start with general principles that can be applied to all. And they say the first principle of success is never be angry. Well, that's hard, right? If we're with someone who's mentally ill or drinking, but remember the big book says we can't harbor resentments. I can't be a safe harbor for resentments. I have to resolve them. And our program teaches us how. We have plenty of podcasts on resolving resentments um, because it's so important. The next principle they give us is they say, you should never tell him what he must do about his drinking. And I say, you should never tell blank what he or she should do about blank. We don't want to tell people what they should do about anything. Unless, of course, we have small children. Then we have an obligation to say, don't cross the street without looking both ways or whatever it is. But with grown people, we really don't. I remember my kids in college. And if my son would say, yeah, I didn't go to class today. I would just, I bite my tongue pretty much, not literally, but I just like, I don't say anything. You know, it's like, it's not my business whether he goes to class. Now, that being said, I can set a boundary. And if he comes home with, you know, Fs on his report card, I can say, you know, we're not going to continue to pay for your college. But in general, what people do with their lives, their time, who they hang out with, who they invite to their weddings is not our business. Next principle here, it says, be determined that your husband's drinking or your kid's refusal to listen to you or your boss is not appreciating you, whatever it is, is not going to spoil your life. Then it says, it is possible to have a full and useful life even though your husband continues to drink, even though this person continues to do whatever. Our book tells us so clearly that recovery is not dependent on circumstances. It's dependent on our relationship with God. If I'm too upset over what someone else is doing, then the problem isn't with the other person. It's with me and God. Um, when I was younger and my kids were younger, if you ask me what's the thing that most blocked me from a full and useful life, I would, would have said anger and fear surrounding my kids. And sometimes a well-meaning friend would say to me, well, it's normal that you worry, you're a mom. No, I worried because my attention was in the wrong place. So here's a prayer that I found that helped me with my kids. Um, hopefully it'll help you. Lord, I see that I don't really love my children too much. I love you too little in proportion to them. Only if I love you supremely will I love everything else well and properly. Capture my heart. Amen. 
I pray for God to capture my heart so I can love him supremely so that I can love everyone else properly. And guys, let me say that that is like a good formula for everything in life. If my, you know, health is a concern for me, if my job is concerned, a concern for me, it's like, God, capture my heart so that you are supreme. The fourth principle they list here on this page says, do not set your heart on reforming your husband, reforming your husband. You may be unable to do so no matter how hard you try. Remember, this program tells me live and let live. So I can't set my heart on reforming my husband's smoking, my college kids' decisions not to go to church, or anyone's drinking, eating, smoking, gambling, fill in the blank. Um, so they've told me four principles so far. Don't get angry. Don't tell him what to do about his drinking. Be determined that his drinking is not going to spoil your life. And don't set your heart on changing him. And then it says... This is really cool. It says, okay, these suggestions may be difficult, but you will save many a heartbreak if you can succeed in observing them. So if my heart is broken, I can ask myself, which of these principles have I violated? Have I gotten angry and harbored resentment? Have I been telling someone else what he or she needs to do about what I perceive are their issues? Am I letting what someone else is doing destroy my life? Am I overly focused on someone else? Or am I trying to set my heart on changing someone else? So if I feel like I have a broken heart, I can look and see which of these principles I violated. Okay, page 115, another principle. It says, you must be on guard not to embarrass or harm your husband. So we want to be careful of that, that we don't, you know, some people um, tell their 10 steps to strangers. I'm not saying you should or shouldn't. I'm saying I don't, because let's say I have a resentment against my husband or my kids. They've done something wrong. Um, I'm very careful that I don't, that I don't betray them by talking about information about them that would embarrass them if they knew I was talking about it to strangers. So I have a few people, my sponsor, Melissa, and two other people I can think of who, who know me well, who know my stuff, who know my family. And I, I limit it if I'm going to talk about sensitive information. I have an obligation not to embarrass or harm people in my family. Okay. Still on page 115, another principle. In dealing with kids and their father, with your children and their father, it says it's best not to take sides in any argument he has with them while drinking. So the rule I always had with myself when my kids were little was that unless my husband was doing something dangerous, I would not interfere. We have to be careful because to me, dangerous could have meant taking them to McDonald's. But I'm talking about I should keep my mouth shut unless my husband was doing something like leaving them in the bathtub when they were little and walking outside, which he never did. Um, that's an example. Um, in hindsight though, I should have kept my mouth shut a lot more. Um, and then they say, page 106, we've tried to hold the love of our children for their father, which I think may be instinctive for a mom to do if she thinks her husband's doing everything wrong and that her kids won't love him. Um, so, 
when my kids were younger, I admit I tried to manipulate relationships and thing, and I would think things like, okay, if I don't tell my husband to go outside and play basketball with Daniel, then he's not going to have a good relationship with Daniel. And when Daniel grows up, he's going to remember my husband's neglect and hate him. Well, Daniel is now about 22 years old and he adores my husband a little bit more than he adores me even. Um, my job is to let other people have their own relationships and not try to manage and control that either by getting people to love each other or to get other family members to take my side against a family member who I don't think is doing things the right way, which of course is my way. Um, so page 115, again, another principle, it says, don't lie on behalf of your husband in order to protect him. We are people who have to be honest, even if there will be consequences for another person. In the chapter to employers, it says sometimes an employer may worry if the guy's drunk, if the wife calls and says he's sick. And it says if he is trying to recover and he is drunk, he will tell you about it, even if it means the loss of his job, for he knows he must be honest if he would live at all. I wish to God that sometime in my first six and a half years in program, someone sat me down and said, Janet, if you are not honest, you may as well not do anything else. It doesn't matter that you're going to meetings, making phone calls, calling someone with your food every day and saying what you're going to eat. You will get nowhere if you're honest. So I am saying that here, guys, if we are not honest, it doesn't matter what else we do. Being dishonest is like taking a big black Sharpie and writing the words, keep out God across our hearts. God will not coexist with dishonesty. No one told me that in six and a half years. Um, so page 116, there's a shift in the book. It's like they're saying, okay, up until now, we've been talking about how to help your husband, but now let's talk about you. And they say, we've elsewhere remarked how much better life is when lived on a spiritual plane. If God can solve the age-old riddle of alcoholism, he can solve your problems too. And I can see a wife reading that. It's like, what? No, I was just here to help the drunk I'm married to. This isn't about me. But the writers of the book press on saying, we wives found like everyone else, we were afflicted with pride, self-pity, vanity, self-centeredness, selfishness and dishonesty. And, you know, at the bottom of page 116, they say, we used to think we were good, capable of being nicer if our husband stopped drinking, right? I wouldn't have been so mean if my husband, my kids, my boss, my mother hadn't done this, that, or the other. But remember, our recovery is never dependent on circumstances. It's always dependent on our relationship with God. And it says, here's the solution. We try to put spiritual principles to work in every department of our lives. And it says, if we do this, then God will give us a radically changed attitude toward our husbands. If we practice humility, gratitude, unselfishness, honesty, and self-sacrifice, basically it, it can be really simplified. It's basically in this situation I'm in, Am I doing what I think God's will is? That's all it is. Am I doing what I think God's will is? So then they tell me something that I didn't really like. Page 117, it says, all problems will not be solved at once. 
The old problems will still be with you. And this is as it should be. Okay, this is as it should be. God's not going to like wave a magic wand and make all my problems go away after I've done all this hard step work. Um, no. And I've learned that when I'm going through a difficult situation here in my own house, these situations force me to rely on God more and look at the idols in my life. Do I have an idol of a perfect marriage? Um, do I have an idol of a perfect children? Do I have an idol of a perfect relationship with my children, which drove me for so many years? I was paralyzed with fear that when my kids grew up and were no longer under my control, that they wouldn't love me anymore. And that fear led me to alternate between being overly lenient to manipulate them into loving me or overly tough to retaliate when I didn't think they loved me right. I'm happy to report that God is good and I have a really good relationship with both my kids, but it took a lot of inventory work and amends and prayer and the grace of God. Um, here's a prayer that I've used with my kids, which of course can be changed to fit anything that's too important in our lives. Lord, I entrust my children to you. I release them to your protective care, knowing that they're much safer with you than in my clinging hands. Please remove all idolatry of my children and my relationship with my children from my heart so that I don't endanger them or myself. Please remove all fear that I won't matter to them. I release my children to you and I release my fear to you so that I'm free to cling to your hand. Thank you that as I entrust my children to you, you are free to shower blessings on them. Thank you that your presence goes with them wherever they go. Thank you that you will guide my children and help them learn to trust you. Thank you that I matter to you. Thank you that your presence stays with me as I relax and trust you. Lord, I'm excited to watch and see what you will do. Amen. Okay, back to the book, page 117. They continue on and they say that these workouts, like these difficult discussions that we sometimes have to have should be regarded as part of our education. It says, you will make mistakes, but if so, if, so this is a conditional promise. If you're in earnest, they won't drag you down. Instead, you will capitalize them. Okay, what does that mean to capitalize on my mistakes? Well, I don't think it means that I'm going to be 100% free of things like anger and fear. I don't think in this lifetime it's ever going to be 100%. But here's what can happen. Our bounce back period should be getting shorter. So as before, maybe I got a resentment or a fear and I'd be angry for like three days or afraid for three days or so depressed I couldn't get out of bed for three days. Well, maybe as I start working the steps, it's two days, then one day, then an hour then 10 minutes. I don't always get it down to 10 minutes, but I can resolve resentments and fears, thank God, in way less time than I used to. So that's one way we can tell if we're growing spiritually. Our bounce back period is shorter. And then how do we capitalize on our mistakes? Well, the steps teach me that I need to really look at my part. So for example, if like one of my kids is mouthing off to me and I get resentful, I don't stop with, she mouthed off to me. My part is I had an expectation that my children don't mouth off. Well, that's not saying really anything wrong with me. I need to go deeper and look at the flaws in my makeup. Am I making an idol out of how much I matter to my children? And by the way, we can tell something's an idol 
when it doesn't just hurt our feelings, when it feels like we got punched in the gut. So I identify what my idols or my problems are. I talk to someone who won't enable me. And we know who the people are who are going to enable us. We don't want to call that. We can call those people to talk, but not when we have a problem and we need someone to help us, you know, through the weeds when, you know, we all have blind spots. So we go to people who we know won't enable us. And most important, we go to God and we repent. God, I'm sorry, please remove this idolatry, remove the fear, remove the anger. And we set about practicing the opposite. The opposite of idolatry is true worship of God. So we can go like sing a worship song to God and see and just think, what would it look like to keep God first? Next principle, bottom of page 117, it says, often you must carry the burden of avoiding resentments or keeping them under control. And in the margin, I wrote, it's not fair. And maybe it's not fair, but it's loving. Remember, fairness is not our code anymore, as Melissa says. Love and tolerance is now my code. And what a great opportunity to practice self-sacrifice, which the book tells me I have to do. If someone utters a snarky remark, I can try not to start an argument. I can absorb it and let it go. I heard something this week that I thought was so beautiful. Grace is forgiveness that costs. If I just forgive someone and it's easy, right? That's not, that's forgiveness, but great. Giving someone grace is when it costs me. When I want to open my mouth and say something back, but I don't. If someone breaks something of mine and I say, it's okay. And I go out and pay for it myself. Grace is forgiveness that costs me. So again, practicing self-sacrifice is critical of our to our recovery, but I really want to stress, I'm not saying that if someone is married to someone who's beating them up, they're just supposed to take it. I'm talking about the occasional insensitive remark. Sometimes it's okay to just let things go. Next principle, page 118, second full paragraph. Your husband knows he owes you more than sobriety. He wants to make good, yet you must not expect too much. I think there's two things here. One, if I don't expect much, then I'm not disappointed. I'm always happily surprised. But also when it says he wants to make good, I think what they're telling us is we're supposed to assume the best about people, that people generally want to do the right thing. If someone does something and I could take it as either they had a good motive or a bad motive, isn't it better to assume the best in people rather than the worst? I mean, that's how I want people to deal with me when I say something that may be ambiguous. Okay, next principle, page 119. When resentful thoughts come, try to pause and count your blessing. So we can intentionally, intentionally look for our blessings. I have a job, I have heat in my house, air conditioning in the summer. I don't live in a state where it snows anymore. I have a husband who loves me and supports my recovery work. Sorry, I just needlessly aroused jealousy. I apologize. Um, and by the way, when we're counting our blessings, we don't just sit there and put them on an app and that's the end of it. If we do use an app because we wanna send it, remember we wanna thank God. So I type mine out on the app and then I sit there and say, thank you God for, and I go down the list and I thank God because otherwise, you know, it's just a grocery list and we're supposed to be developing our relationship with God. 
Okay, page 119, it says, find a great cause to live for. You probably need fresh interest as much as your husband. Find a great cause to live for. Okay, how lucky are we? We get to recover. We get to help others and get closer to God in the process. Is there a greater cause on earth? Not for me. Um, and the top of page 20, they tell us how to live this out. It says, think about what you can put into life instead of how much you can take out. So maybe when we go places, we think, how can I contribute here instead of what's in it for me? We think, how can I best serve God and the people here? And then finally, at the end of the chapter, they talk about what to do if someone gets drunk. And I love how they deal with this. Page 120, they say, perhaps your husband has made a fair start and things are going well, but then he gets drunk. What do you do? It says, if you're satisfied, he really wants to get over drinking, you need not be alarmed. So what they're telling us here is that it is possible to really want to recover, but stumble. Remember in the forward to the second edition, it says that 25% of the original fellows who really tried recovered after some relapse. Imagine if they'd given up on that 25%. And by the way, I would have been included in that 25%. So they tell us not to be alarmed at the person's relapse, but they say it's infinitely better that he has no relapse at all, as has been true with many of our men. It's a, not a bad thing under one condition. If it makes the person see, he has to redouble his spiritual activities in order to survive, right? If it's like the binge that makes a person say, oh my gosh, like I really can't, I, I must stop. This is it, I, I can't do it. I thought I could have one, but I couldn't. So what does it mean to redouble our spiritual activities? Work the steps harder, more self-sacrifice for others, more time with God, more surrender of things. I'm not quite willing to surrender, more God, more love, more service. And then they say, if he gets drunk, don't blame yourself. I am never the cause of someone else's drinking or binging and no one else is ever the cause of mine. Okay, we're in the home stretch here. Bottom of page 120, it says, God has either removed your husband's liquor problem or he has not. If not, it had better be found out right away. Then you and your husband can get right down to fundamentals. If a repetition is to be prevented, place the problem along with everything else in God's hands. Okay, there's a lot there and a lot that can help us as compulsive eaters. So let's try to break it down real quick. It says, God has either removed your husband's liquor problem or he has not. Or for us, God has either removed our compulsive eating problem or he has not. Okay, what does that even mean? Is God up in heaven flipping a coin? Heads, I'll remove Janet's eating problem. Tails, I won't. No. They're telling me if God hasn't removed my food problem, it's because I have not placed my food problem and everything else in his hands. Remember, chapter four tells us that either God is everything or else he's nothing, meaning either I surrender everything to God or it's as if I've given him nothing. I can't give him my food plan, but cheat on my husband or cheat on my taxes. So I think they're telling us is to see what we haven't placed in God's hands. What have we not been willing to do and then do it? That's what fundamentals are. It makes me think of middle school social studies where we learned about the kings and the serfs. As long as the serfs were on the king's land, when the invading army comes to attack, the king pulls up the drawbridge. And if I'm on his land, I am safe and protected. But if I wander off, 
through dishonesty, lack of surrender, refusal to make amends or things like that, or just because I think I can do things better than the king, when the invading army comes and I'm not on the king's land, I'm not safe and protected. Not because the king doesn't love me, but because I've wandered off. So they're telling us we're liable to drink or eat compulsively if we basically wander off the king's land. But the good thing about this king is that he will always, always take us back. And even more, he will launch a search and rescue mission for us. Final page of this chapter, page 121. The writers of the chapter say that we realize this is hard stuff, but we really want to help you avoid unnecessary difficulties. And then they conclude by saying, the end of the chapter, good luck and God bless you. I mean, they're asking God, the creator who flung the moon, the stars, and all the planets to bless us. And to bless means to confer his divine favor on us. And so if we approach him in humility, he always will. Because whether we are wives living with raging alcoholics who feel unseen and unheard, or compulsive eaters who feel our lives are unmanageable and no human power can save us, we matter. We always matter to God. And with that, I will pass.